We come in our preaching series in First Peter to the last two verses of chapter 2. And here Peter declares the very heart of the gospel when he says of Christ who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You remember that Peter began in verse 11 of this chapter to exhort Christians to live in the grace and the truth of the salvation which they have already received, and reminded us that our good works will be observed by unbelievers, and God will use that to bring some of them to Christ. Like our Lord said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And then Peter spells out some of those good works. For example, submission to civil authority, verses 13 through 17, and submission to domestic authority in verses 18 through 20. And there he has in mind primarily the slave-master relationship, which was so common in his day. But there certainly are applications to our own employer-employee relationships and other human relationships in our lives as well. And Peter said you should give them patient and humble submission even if they are cruel and ungodly. In other words, even if you are suffering unjustly. Because, he said, we need to suffer like Christ suffered. We need to follow Christ's example and walk in his steps. And that is in reference to this suffering of Christ, this unjust suffering which he endured. But as we realize now, as we come to the conclusion of the chapter, that all of this is for the sake of the gospel. And even in practical exhortations to daily living, we must never stray too far from the gospel, because that really is the foundation and heart of it all. This is why we should live godly, is because we have been saved by the cross of Christ, is what Peter is saying. And in this last part of the chapter, he quotes heavily from Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant chapter, telling us that the promised Messiah would be a suffering Messiah. In the verses 22 through 25, there are at least eight citations or allusions to Isaiah chapter 53 and the great suffering of Christ, which he has already set before us as an example for how we should suffer. But now he goes to the very heart of what that suffering was all about. It was for our soul's salvation. And so in looking at verses 24 and 25, we want to ask and answer, by God's help, three questions. Number one, what did Christ do upon the cross? Number two, how does this affect believers? And number three, what is the essence of conversion? Number one, what did Christ do upon the cross? Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. What did Christ do upon the cross? Was Christ dying upon the cross as a martyr for a noble cause? No. Was Christ dying on the cross as an example for how we should suffer? Yes, as Peter has already pointed out. But far more than that, that's just a little part of what Christ was doing. He was doing something more profound than simply setting an example for us. So what did Christ do upon the cross? And in the opening words of verse 24, Peter, I think, suggests three things for our consideration. 
Number one, he assumed our humanity. Number two, he bore our sins. And number three, he took our curse. What did Christ do upon the cross? Well, number one, he assumed our humanity. Not that he assumed it initially upon the cross, but that's the focal point of why he assumed our humanity. Because he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. In his own body on the tree, a body thou hast prepared for me. He assumed our humanity, the invisible, infinite, almighty Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, eternal God, assumed human form. He, he became in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did not become sinful flesh, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in humanity like our own. And that, of course, is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which, as we know, began with the virgin conception. But the purpose was so that he could hang upon the cross. He had to have a body to suffer and die in the place of sinful men and women. In our condition, our humanity, our bodies, there is punishment, there is just condemnation, which involves, of course, more than the body, but certainly involves the body. It is in these bodies that we have sinned and failed God, and it is in these bodies that we are due condemnation and punishment for our sins. And therefore, it must be in a body that Jesus Christ would hang upon the cross to suffer for sinners. In other words, he was born to die. He assumed our humanity. But secondly, he bore our sins. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He bore our sins. And now... Peter is referring once again to some of the phraseology of Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, this is a, a reference to a number of phrases in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53.11 we read, For he shall bear their iniquities, that idea of bearing sins. Or in verse 12 we read, And he bore the sin of many. In Isaiah 4, we read, Surely he hath borne our griefs three times. In Isaiah 53, the prophet talks about Christ bearing, the Messiah bearing something upon himself. And in chapter 53, verse 6, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Peter, as it were, takes all of those phrases from Isaiah 53, and he summarizes them in this one phrase when he says, He himself bore our sins in his own body. He himself bore our sins. It was very personal. He himself. The himself is emphatic. Christ did this himself. Nobody else could do it. Nobody else could do it efficaciously for sinners. Nobody else could do it vicariously on behalf of others. Nobody else could satisfy the righteous justice of a holy God, but the sinless Son of God. And so He Himself 
bore our sins. Peter tells us, therefore, that it was entirely voluntary. Nobody forced Christ to go to the cross. He was not forced against his will. He was not was not captured and, and forced to hang upon the cross when he didn't want to do that. That's why he was not a martyr for a cause, because he was Almighty God. He could, as the songwriter says, have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and to set him free. But he didn't do that. He himself bore our sins on the cross. He voluntarily did that. He did that out of love. He did that out of compassion and mercy for sinners like you and like me. What he did was very difficult. He bore our sins. He bore a word that means to carry, to endure the massive weight. He bore our sins. It's also a a verb that is in the, the aorist tense, which means it happened one time in the past, never to be repeated again. He did this one time, and then it is finished. And Christ is not crucified again and again and again. He was crucified one time. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. It was a vicarious act. He bore our sins, not his sins. He had none. The sinless Son of God bore our sins. Our sins. Peter includes himself here. Our sins. And that's unusual. Because most of the time when Peter writes, he writes in terms of you, second person plural, rather than we, first person plural. In fact, in the entire book of First Peter, he uses you 83 times. He uses we only four times. But occasionally, it's we. Because Peter had to include himself in this. And so he bore our sins in his own body. All the sins of all of his people were placed upon Christ when he hung upon the tree. This is confessional. Peter says our sins, including all of his readers and indeed all believers, all Christians down through the ages, all acknowledging that we are sinners, all acknowledging that we have many sins that condemn us before God Almighty. We have disobeyed His Word. We have violated His law. We have rebelled against His authority. We have done many things that are wrong and shameful and sinful and violations of His holy will and deserving of His just wrath. But we confess our sins. He bore our sins. We quickly acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Peter is basically saying the same thing that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he said, For he, God, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There it is, the same thing. God made Christ to become a sinner for a period of time. Not that he was guilty of sin, but that God treated him as a sinner. God treated our sins as if they belonged to Christ. And Christ 
voluntarily took them, accepted those sins, and and embraced them as his own in order to bear the judgment for them, so that sinners who trust in Christ need never bear the judgment in ourselves, because the only judgment that is due unto sinners is eternal condemnation. And Christ, therefore, gladly took that upon himself. And so God the Father punished God the Son with the anger that is justly due unto our sins. God the Father punished the Son with the separation from God that is justly due unto our sins, which is why the Son of God cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the separation which we deserved and which we would certainly experience an eternal separation from Almighty God unless we avail ourselves of this provision, this wonderful, gracious provision of God. God Almighty punished God the Son with the death that we deserve, the physical death upon the cross, which is why He had to have a body, and the soul death, the the separation of the soul from God the Father, as we must experience unless we are in Christ. And so all of this is what made Christ the substitute of sinners. He became the substitute of all who trust in Him. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Who, number one, assumed our humanity, number two, bore our sins, and number three, took our curse, which is really an extended thought on top of the fact that he bore our sins. But when Peter says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, there seems to be a definite purpose for that language, on the tree rather than on the cross. The Greek word that Peter uses here could be translated cross, But it's not the normal word for cross. It's a word that allows a number of different translations. It's a rather rather flexible Greek word. It can be translated tree, as it is here. It can be translated wood, as it is some places elsewhere. It can be used of any object made of wood. Sometimes it's, it's translated clubs or wooden stocks depending upon the context that tells us what kind of wood is in view here. In this case, it is apparent that Peter has tree in mind. Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Peter elsewhere talks about the cross of Christ in terms of a tree. In Acts 5.30 and again in Acts 10.39, and Paul the apostle does the same thing in Acts 13.29, So this is not unfamiliar language when Peter uses it in this first epistle. And it is selected, apparently, to recall to mind the words of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. And here's what it says. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God 
is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. He who is hanged is accursed of God. Someone who was, whose body was hanged upon a tree in the Old Testament was marked out as an especially heinous criminal. And oftentimes the nations of, of the Mediterranean world would hang bodies on a tree or sometimes on a city wall and leave them there for days on end in order to extend the shame of that person's criminality, in order to strike fear into the hearts of anyone who might dare to repeat the crime which they did. But God says to his people, you shall not do that. You shall not leave them on that tree, but you shall take them down and bury them because there's already so much shame attached to that. Just the fact that as a criminal, they were their body was hanged out in public view like that even for a few hours is, is a matter of deepest shame. And, and that person is accursed. They are marked out as cursed by God and therefore take them and bury them away. Now that's the Old Testament reference that Peter apparently has in mind. And that does speak to us of what Christ did upon the cross. As Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13, when he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Paul refers to that same passage in Deuteronomy 21. This special curse of God for those who are hung as a criminal in public view. And Paul says that Jesus hung on a tree. And Peter says that Jesus hung on a tree. And all of this recalls the deep shame of implied criminality. And is designed to strike home to us with greater force how great is our sin. We are criminals in the sight of God. Our prideful humanity causes us to think that we're good people. We like to compare ourselves with others always favorably. We view others more harshly and view ourselves more leniently. That's just human nature. The old moat beam problem that Christ talked about. We tend to minimize our sins. We tend to think of ourselves as not being so bad. We may have slipped up a little bit here and there, but we're not really all that bad. And to think of ourselves as criminals, we can hardly bring ourselves to claim that distinction or that, that uh, ignominy. But that's what Peter wants his readers to understand. That's what Peter wants all people to understand, that in our sin and rebellion against God, we are criminals against the King of Heaven. We have defied the authority of the Most High God. We have disobeyed His laws, and we deserve the most shameful and heinous punishment that would be meted out to any criminal. But Jesus Christ took that upon us as well, upon himself as well. When he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now some have taken this language, tree for cross, and other symbol symbolic words that are used in various places to erroneously teach that Jesus did not die upon a cross, he died upon a stake. I don't know if you've ever heard that. 
There is a rather large cult in America that teaches that. And the only reason I bring that up is to just show you the fallacy of erroneous biblical interpretation. Because that, of course, fails to include all statements about the crucifixion, of which many are very clear that Christ died upon a cross. How could we miss that? All scripture must be interpreted in the light of other scripture. Sometimes that principle is called the analogy of scripture. We have to take all the references to a particular matter into account as we look at any one particular text. Furthermore, that teaching fails to recognize the figures of speech that are used in the Bible, symbolic language that is used in the Bible. Obviously, that's what Peter is doing here. He's using the word tree as a symbol for the cross, but he has a reason for doing that. He wants us to link it to the words of Deuteronomy 21 so that we can see that when Christ was hanging on the cross, he was bearing the curse of God of Deuteronomy 21. And that we all are those criminals that are accursed by God, as in Deuteronomy 21. It's a figure of speech. And furthermore, interpretation like that fails to appreciate historic Christianity. Some people seem to delight in rejecting as much as they can in historic Christianity and and, uh, indicating that they've come up with something brand new that nobody else ever thought of before. And whenever you hear anything like that, you should have red flags going up all over the place. You should be immediately suspicious. Sure, Peter says, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. But of course, the tree here is a symbol for the cross. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross, a Roman cross, an execution stake, a cross. And why did he do that? We started out asking the question, what did Jesus do upon the cross? And the answer is, he died to fully satisfy the just payment due our sins. Jesus Christ died upon the cross to fully satisfy in every regard the just punishment of a holy God that is due to our sins, all of us who are members of the human race. The question is, therefore, did he do this for you? And I hope your heart answers with a resounding yes. Praise God. He did that for me. And how do you know? How do you know he did that for you? Well, you know he did that for you if you have been, by the Spirit of God, brought to believe in Christ. If you have been brought to place your faith upon Christ... If you have been brought to repent of your sins and to turn to Christ and to trust Him and Him alone for your soul's salvation, if you have been taught of the Holy Spirit of God to rely upon the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary for your salvation and nothing that you have done, no merit of my own His anger to suppress, my only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. If you have been brought to that faith that I just described in Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross, then yes, you can be certain that Jesus did that for you. And that's the evidence of it, the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart to make you understand that. And if you cannot say that this morning, then what are you waiting for? Why do you tarry? Why do you linger? When the Christ who hung upon the cross, says, Come unto me, all ye that weary and are heavy laden, 
And I will give you rest. Another symbolic statement. What does he mean? I'll give you the rest of relief from the burden and guilt of sin. I'll save your soul. I'll remove your condemnation before the judgment bar of God. For all who come to me, I will gladly do that. Don't tarry. Don't tarry another moment. Go to Christ in your heart by faith. But secondly, how does this affect believers? For the verse goes on. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that, or in order that, we having died to sins might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. How does Christ's death upon the cross affect believers? Well, it affects believers in many ways. and Some of them we've already looked at. It affects believers judicially. It changes our standing before the judgment bar of God, which is yet future. It affects believers eternally. It gives us eternal life, and we shall forever be with the Lord. But Peter is now focusing upon the question, how does this affect believers now, here and now, upon the earth, in this life, before we die? How does Christ's death upon the cross affect how we live today? Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree in order that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. That's how. In other words, his death upon the cross, when we trust in that, removes us from the domain of sin and establishes us in the domain of righteousness. That we having died to sins. Paul explains this further in Romans chapter 6 and elsewhere, but probably the most extensive treatment in Romans chapter 6. What it means to die to sins. It means that our union with Christ changes our nature as well as our standing. It means that we have been removed from sin's dominion and placed under the dominion of Jesus Christ. We've changed kingdoms. We've changed kings. We've changed realms. We don't live like we did before because we don't live where we did before because we're not under the dominion of the one that we were under the dominion of before. We are in a new sphere of existence, a new kingdom, a new realm, with a new king, with new abilities and new desires. Now, we're still living upon the earth, and and to the visible eye, at, at first glance, it doesn't appear that that much has changed, but oh, everything has changed. Everybody in this world is either under the dominion of Satan, which looks more like living for self, or under the dominion of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords which means that we are living for him, no longer living for self. And when we have died to sins, we are dead to that old realm, and we are alive to this new realm. And when we trust in Christ, then we died with Christ upon the cross to our old existence, and we are now living in a new realm. That's what Peter says, that we having died to sin might live for righteousness. In other words, that we might be utterly alienated from our sins is what that word die means. It's the only time this particular word for die is used in the New Testament. Peter selected one that has a little bit different meaning and has the idea of part from, cease to exist, 
that we might be parted from our sins, that we might cease to exist in relationship to our sins, to our former way of life. When we trust in Christ, we are freed not only from sin's penalty, the condemnation before the judgment bar of God, but also from sin's power. It no longer has that dominating power over us that it had before. Now we don't have to sin. One day we'll be freed from the presence of sin. That awaits eternity. But right now, we're freed from both the penalty and the power of sin. We're dead to the dominating power of sin. But we are alive, of course, to righteousness. There's a, there's a counter side to this. There's two parts, both two sides of the same coin. And so Christ's death upon the cross, when, when someone truly trusts in him, it not only causes that person to die to his former life, his former sins, but it causes him to live for righteousness. Because now, for the first time, we are truly able to live for righteousness. We couldn't do that before we were regenerated and justified. We're now able to live for righteousness. Peter is telling us that the redeemed people of God live righteous lives. Not sinless perfection. The Bible nowhere teaches that. But the Bible does teach that there is a distinct change. There's a distinct different difference. If those who call themselves the people of God aren't living any differently, in essence, than those who are not the people of God, make no claim to be the people of God, then something is radically and drastically wrong. And what is evidently wrong is that you are professing something that is not true. You claim to be a child of God. But there's been no real change. No change of heart. No regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Nothing really has taken place within your life. You, Whatever you've done, you might have adopted the Christian religion. You might have given assent to something about Jesus Christ. But the question is, have you been born again? Because when you have been born again, things are different now. Something happened to me when I gave my heart to Jesus. And that's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that everybody whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. Everybody whom God justifies, he also puts on the road of progressive sanctification. And although our heart longs for perfection and our heart is disturbed and, and disappointed with ourselves, whenever we sin, as we do far too often... We recognize it as sin. We don't justify it. We don't, we don't defend it. We acknowledge it as sin. We confess it as sin. And we cry out to God to help us with it. And we go on and we grow little by little in grace and knowledge. And we can do that because of the cross of Christ. That's what enables us to do this. So how does the cross of Christ affect believers? It removes us from the domain of sin. It establishes us in the domain of righteousness. And then Peter more or less restates all this in terms of spiritual healing. That's the last part of verse 24. By whose stripes you were healed. He can't get far from Isaiah 53, so he has to dip back into that chapter again and bring forth another proof text for what he's preaching to us here. 
by whose stripes you are healed, by whose wounds, the Greek word means wounds, or a wound caused by flogging. Wounds received in the process of crucifixion. The wounds that Jesus suffered leading up to his final impalement upon the cross and his eventual death there. In other words, everything that caused the death of Christ, that's the stripes, that's the wounds that Peter is talking about. He's quoting now from Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's what he's quoting here. Isaiah 53, 5. By his stripes we are healed, by his wounds. But notice here, Peter changes Isaiah's words from the first to the second person. I'm not sure why, but he he resorts to his usual habit of addressing his readers in second person rather than first. Isaiah said, by his stripes we are healed. Peter said, by his stripes you are healed. Maybe to encourage Gentile believers to realize that the salvation of the promised Messiah of Isaiah 53 is as much for Gentiles who believe as it is for Jews who believe. Perhaps that's the reason for the change here. A special emphasis upon you, you my readers, you my hearers. But at any rate, he pulls down this phrase, by his stripes you were healed. In other words, healed of your sin sickness, healed of your depravity, healed of your sinfulness, healed of your <coughs> ability or inability to do righteousness. You're, you're being trapped and bound in sin, which is all that you could do. But by his death on the cross, you're healed of all that so that now you can live for righteousness. And he is, as it were, summarizing what he's just said about the effects of Christ's death upon the cross. He died so that we might be dead to our sins and might live for righteousness. By his stripes you were healed. Now some have taken this phrase to teach that there is a promise of physical healing in the death of Christ and that if we'll just understand that and believe that, we can be healed of all of our diseases. A terrible misuse of this text. Sometimes that doctrine is stated in terms of healing in the atonement. And that's the debate. Is there healing in the atonement? When Christ died upon the cross, when he atoned for our sins, did he secure our physical healing as well as our spiritual healing? Is there healing in the atonement? Well, let me answer that question. Is there healing in the atonement? The way Peter uses the word healing, absolutely yes. There is healing in the atonement, but he's talking about spiritual healing from sin. He's saying nothing here about diseases and sickness and physical healing. However, to answer that question again, is there healing in the atonement? The Bible teaches us elsewhere that there absolutely is. But that's part of our salvation that we don't get until later. Not now. Later. Is there sinless perfection in the atonement? Of course there is. We get that later. Is there promise of presence forever with the Lord, never to be separated from His presence in the atonement? Yes, later. 
Is there the promise of, of living forever in heaven in the atonement? Yes, later. That Christ conquered death upon the cross. Is there the conquering of death in the atonement? Yes, but does that mean that we'll never die? No, we actually have to die to experience that resurrection and that eternal life. And I think we have to experience physical infirmities to arrive at the place where we enjoy the benefits of physical healing in the atonement. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about sins. The whole context shouts that. Why would you ever misuse this phrase for any other purpose? What does the verse say? Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Shouldn't that be apparent that Peter's talking about spiritual healing? It seems like it should be. And the whole context of Isaiah 53 says the same thing. Why would anyone take that phrase that Peter quotes here out of Isaiah 53 and apply that to physical healing? The whole chapter has to do with our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions. The whole chapter deals with that. Nothing about physical healing. Which reminds us once again that when it comes to interpreting Scripture, context is king. Everything must be understood in the light of its context. If you can take a phrase here and snatch another phrase there and apply any meaning to it that you want to, regardless of what it says in its context, you can make the Bible teach most anything. And that's where all of these crazy cults come from. That's where all these crazy ideas come from. Someone will say, but it's in the Bible. Well, of course, the phrase is in the Bible, but let's... Take that phrase, put it back in its verse, see what the whole verse says, put it back in its chapter, see what the whole chapter says, put it back in its book, see what the whole book is saying, compare it with what the Bible says elsewhere, and then you'll understand what that phrase means. And if you don't, you'll just deceive yourself. You'll, you'll manufacture your own religion. You say, I like that, I'll take it. I like that, I'll take that. I like this. I think this is what this means. You know this idea of sitting around in the Bible study, reading a verse and saying now, let each person say, now what does this verse mean to you? Okay. What does this verse mean to you? Okay. What does this verse mean to you? Okay. Now I understand that sometimes there might be some value in that to get things out on the table, so to speak, to analyze them and deal with them. But I think maybe it, it tends to teach the wrong idea. It really doesn't matter what that verse means to you unless you understand it properly. The real question is not, what does that verse mean to you? The question is, what does that verse mean? Period. It only means one thing. Correctly understood. Now, we may have to work hard at understanding it, and we may sometimes disagree on what it means, because none of us are perfect. We're all still sinners, even as saints of God, we're still dealing with the effects of the fall in our mind, as well as in other places. And so... There sometimes will be difficulty in arriving at the meaning, but that's what the whole work of Bible study is about. And the question is not, what does this verse mean to you? Can you get a little blessing out of that somewhere? The question is, what does this verse mean? What did the author of that 
statement mean when he wrote it? More importantly, what did the Holy Spirit of God intend by that statement? That's the only thing that really matters. Everything else is folly. What does it mean? And when you understand what it means to everyone who understands it properly, then you can say, all right, now I can apply it to myself. What does it mean to me? It means what God intended it to mean to everyone who reads it and studies it. And now I apply it to myself. And so by whose stripes you were healed means healing from curse and dominion of sin. It means healed to enable us to live for righteousness. But I hasten on. What is the essence of conversion? Verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And now Peter takes us to Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Peter is describing, first of all, our former condition before we were converted, and secondly, our present condition now that we are converted. And in doing this, he's again reinforcing what he said. But our former condition, you were like sheep going astray. Sheep are notoriously stupid. Sheep are defenseless. Sheep are prone to wandering. Sheep are helpless. Sheep are unable to find their way back without a shepherd. Sheep, I'm told, are about the most stupid and defenseless mammals that God ever created. When Isaiah and later Peter tells us that we are like sheep, that is not a compliment. But it's an apt description to help us understand what we are like in our nature. We were like stupid sheep wandering from the shepherd to our own destruction and not knowing how to find him. But that's changed, thank God, because of the shepherd and his grace. What is our present condition? But now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now have returned. That speaks of repentance. And conversion, turned, or been converted, or have been turned about, would be other ways to translate this word. You have turned to Christ as the shepherd and overseer, or bishop, of your soul. That speaks of Christ's authority and supervision. That speaks of the sheep's accountability to the shepherd. That speaks of submission and surrender to the authority of the shepherd. And, dear friend, if you're not so related to Christ, you're still lost. Don't let that slip by you too quickly. This is the essence of conversion. To be brought into relationship with Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, His care, His oversight, His authority, your accountability, living a life before Him, your submission, your surrender to His care. That's the essence of conversion. If that isn't true of you, then evidently you need to be converted. 
And so that's the meaning of the cross. What Christ accomplished for sinners by his death. And how in his death, when sinners trust in him, there is a change, a profound change that takes place. And therefore, come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. What should your response be? I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for giving us a Savior. Thank you, Father, for not leaving us in our sin and our rebellion. Thank you, Father, for not giving us what we deserve, but in mercy, giving us the exact opposite. Such great salvation, all found in Jesus Christ, your Son. O Lord, may we embrace Him. May we love Him. May we serve Him. By your Spirit, O Lord, draw such saving faith from every heart here today, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.